Sausage of Science. Uh, I am Kara. Chris is not here right now, but hopefully he can join us later. And today we're going to be adding on to another in our series of Hackademics, where we'll be talking with Bill Leonard, who is at Northwestern, who is also the new editor-in-chief at the American Journal of Human Biology. And the hope today, as part of this Hackademic series, is that he might help demystify what an editor-in-chief actually does and what that might mean for your chances at publication. So without further ado, let's welcome on Bill. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my great pleasure, Kara. Thanks so much for inviting me. This should be a lot of fun. Yeah, and thank you, because this is now your second interview with us and you get to wear your editor hat rather than Indeed, your yeah. And I so enjoyed the first interview. So yeah, looking forward to hopefully demystifying a little bit the process of peer review, what editors, associate editors, editorial board members do, and, uh, and also hopefully an opportunity to talk a little bit about my vision for the journal. Yeah, that would be great. As we always do, we send a list of questions out to our interviewees, but we also post it up on Twitter and on Facebook trying to get questions from our listeners and, you know, invested individuals in HHB. And so we have some questions from, you know, myself and Chris, as well as from the Twitterverse. So we'll kind of intermix those in throughout. Fantastic. But let's first start with very, very basic. Editor-in-chief is a big job. So what inspired you to take this on? So what inspired me? I, th I think the, the strongest inspiration came from my really deep roots with both the Human Biology Association and the American Journal of Human Biology itself. I was, I was a junior faculty member when the journal was started in 1989. And so over the course of my career, I've had the opportunity to both contribute to the journal and also really see how over the course of the last 30 plus years, the journal has grown and our field of human biology, I think, has grown and matured. One of the things that has impressed me the most about the growth and maturation of our field of human population biology is seeing it go from what I largely saw as a graduate student as, as a field that was largely descriptive, talking about and describing variation in different populations across the world, to now a theoretically sophisticated and rigorous field that is testing evolutionary and biocultural questions. And for my money, I believe that the American Journal of Human Biology is the world's leading journal in human population biology. Over the last six years, Lynette Sievert, an editorial assistant, Lil Knight have done a tremendous job in maintaining that stature and growing the journal. And, and so it's my hope to sort of continue to expand the profile and really hopefully continue to recruit the very best work in, in human population biology. Yeah, so we should absolutely give props to Lynette Sievert for doing a wonderful job these past few years. It is not an easy one for sure. Yeah. Uh, and so if maybe we could get a little bit of insight into what Lynette just left and what you are about to be doing, what are the actual duties of the editor-in-chief? Yeah, the duties of the editor-in-chief, I mean, what I see as the role of the editor-in-chief are really three important issues. Encouraging and recruiting for our journal the very best research in human population biology, then ensuring fair and timely review and ultimate publication of that outstanding work. And then the third piece, and it's, it's an area that I'm, increasingly mindful of in taking over as editor is working to ensure that that good work 
gets maximal exposure and impact in terms of eyes on it and impact in the field. That the good work gets exposed to as big an audience as possible because I think our journal is fulfilling a really important role. We have, I think, broad impact in the biomedical sciences. So we reach out to affiliated fields like exercise science, Mm. nutritional science. But I think the core mission is we are the place where people are publishing research looking at the evolutionary and biocultural dimensions of human biological diversity and health. And so continuing to sort of foster that piece is, mm-hmm. is what I see as, as the role of editor. Then in terms of the jobs of the editorial board and mm-hmm. associate editors, you can think of American Journal of Human Biology as kind of a hybrid model where we have both associate editors and editorial board members. In general, for AJHB, we make decisions typically based on two reviews. And so there will be some papers that come in for me as editor where I see that I have a fair amount of expertise Hmm. and I will select reviewers directly, often from our editorial board, to Mm -hmm. be the reviewers on those papers. There will be some other papers that I feel like our associate editors, we have five of them, our associate editors perhaps have more expertise. And so I will then allocate that paper to an associate editor. And it's the associate editor's job then to select the reviewers themselves. And then once those reviews come back in, provide a summary and a recommendation to me as editor-in-chief about whether or not to accept, reject, you know, or revise the paper. Making those decisions, is it based off the abstract? How much do you actually read of the manuscript before deciding if it's you, editorial board, or the associate editors? When a manuscript comes in, I will quickly read through the abstract and then skim the paper itself and get get a real sense of, okay, who should be the point person on this? Some of it will be topically oriented. So for example, Tad Schur is our associate editor for genetics. So things that are in genetics, they're going to Tad straight away. Mm -hmm. I'm also mindful of balancing out workloads so that I don't want any of our associate editors or editorial board members to be hugely disproportionately burdened. So trying to sort of manage workflow in that regard is also an important consideration. Okay, interesting. Now that's really good to know. You described really well about how a paper goes out to review and who should review it. And so the pool of reviewers, I think for a lot of us, we become a pool of reviewers because we have submitted papers to exactly. But then how do you also expand out beyond that, uh, especially for maybe more unique areas uh, of research or more obscure areas of research where there isn't a big pool of people? That's a very good question. And finding and maintaining a a pool of reviewers is, I think, a really big and important task. I mean, one of the other things that led me to think that I could take on this role was having been an associate editor at both AJPA for the last nine years and an associate editor for AJHB for the last few, the last three. And so part of that experience of being an associate editor is broadening my own professional network, learning about who are good reviewers and good contributors in various different fields, and working with those colleagues throughout the process. Mm. I think the other thing that I have always viewed as very important as part of the editorial process 
previously as an associate editor and now as editor-in-chief, is bringing in young scholars to the process. And so I see the reviewing process as an opportunity to recruit and work with talented young scholars, new PhDs, postdocs, assistant professors, giving them an opportunity to review in some of these areas. And as you were alluding to, in many of the cutting edge areas of human biology, it's going to be the younger folks who have that expertise. And so harnessing knowledge and that information becomes important. And then how do you balance that? Because it's the junior folks whose time are usually, the, you know, we're the most constrained. Uh, yes. We're trying to get our own articles out and get grants out, so on and so forth. And reviewing a paper can be a lot of effort. Reviewing a paper can be a lot of effort. And I think that's another message that I would also like to send out in terms of thinking about the review process. Because I, mean, I know for myself, when I started reviewing papers, I, it's scary. It could be intimidating because you're reviewing people who might control your future. <laughs> exactly right. It's a scary and intimidating process. And, and what to say, how much to say, how thorough. And so what I would try to encourage people to think about when they're reviewing their manuscripts is you don't need to be a copy editor on it. Now, if there are you know language problems, if there are grammatical issues, problems of flow of text and, and the writing, certainly flag that up, but don't feel as though you need to be going through and page by page editing up someone else's work. That's, that's not your job. The most useful and valuable input that I think we can get as editors and associate editors is, is this paper right and appropriate for the journal? Methodology, if you have expertise in terms of the methods that the researchers are, are using, are those up to snuff? And are they appropriately using the techniques? Are they telling the world enough information to be able to potentially replicate that, that work down the line? And how effectively are they actually presenting their results and going from results to conclusions? Is, mm -hmm. is that logically presented? I think the other thing that I found for myself over the years that can be valuable is, do you think that researchers have appropriately contextualized their work? Mm. That can be contextualized, obviously, in the world that we're part of, human population biology. So in many cases, we might see papers that are really well done, but they're better contextualized for a genetics journal or mm -hmm. an exercise science journal or a nutrition journal. So are they speaking to our audience? Are they citing the most recent research? And are there, are there people, is there literature out there that they would benefit from incorporating in? Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of issues that I think reviewers can be particularly helpful on. I think that's a really wonderful guide for new reviewers as well, because it can get so easy to become that copy editor because you yes. see it and it's going to itch until you fix it and you have to fix it right. uh, for a lot of people. And I, so I think that's a really good thing for the younger generations coming up to really hear that that's not your job. You need to focus on the bigger picture, the quality of the data and the quality of the work. So I think that's wonderful. And I certainly know for myself, early on reviewing papers, there was the tendency of, for me at least, trying to correct the language and trying to have the authors say whatever they were going to say in the manner that I would have said it. And I don't see that as the reviewer's job. So Yeah. No, it's a tough thing. It's a really hard thing because you have a style. And so, of course, you want to see it all in that style, but that's exactly. not how it works. So, yeah, you, you literally have to turn a switch when you are reviewing somebody else's work. Uh, and so kind of another question about the process. 
because I'm sure everyone who is listening to this, or most everyone who is yes. listening to this, has had a review from the infamous reviewer number two. Mm -hmm. right, <laughs> For those exactly. who are unfamiliar, what we call reviewer number two is the review that basically pans all of your work and says it's terrible and you should quit academia. That's, of course, an exaggeration. But there are also times where reviewer two will just say things that are very off the wall that don't seem to fit with what you just wrote. Right. And so I think everyone is a little curious how those reviews end up getting back to the author when they seem so far afield, of, or at least what the author thinks is going on in the paper. Yes. So to give you a sense then of how I think we as editors and associate editors wind up handling those kinds of reviews. I mean, when, when a review comes in, unless it's completely off the wall, I have always felt duty bound as editor and associate editor that this needs to be conveyed. They put in the work. Mm -hmm should be conveyed to the authors of the paper. But it is the job then of the editorial staff, associate editors and myself as editor in chief to then go through those reviews and hopefully give the authors some guidance on, here's what you need to focus on. Mm -hmm. And in cases where, as often happens, there are contradictory reviews mm -hmm. or you are getting clearly mixed messages from two reviewers to try to provide some guidance on, here's what to focus on. And even at times, you maybe don't need to pay so much attention to points mm -hmm. three, four, and five of yeah. the infamous reviewer number two. Um, okay. And so it's a challenging part of the process. I think it's fair to say that any of us who have worked in academic writing for any amount of time have all had our fair share of reviewer number twos. And, mm -hmm. and my advice in terms of authors responding to those reviews, this is advice that I think translates in a lot of academia, that in my experience, even if you're getting negativity and bile from manuscript reviews, grant reviews, other kinds of reviews, responding in kind doesn't win anybody any, any favors. Taking the high road whenever you can and, and trying to be as dispassionate and as systematic as possible in your response mm -hmm. is the strategy to go with. That's a wonderful thing to talk about. We uh, actually just interviewed uh, somebody who researches imposter syndrome and how easy it is to take things like reviews on manuscripts and grants and make it very personal when it's exactly. not personal. So I think that's another highlight. Everybody, it's not personal. You're not being personally attacked. So that's a good thing to keep in mind. Exactly right. You're not being personally attacked. And I think in terms of dealing with reviews in those cases, it often can be helpful to read through the reviews once, and then rather than jumping right into revisions, put them aside and give yourself a little time and come back to them with a fresh set of eyes and, and a bit perhaps less emotionally attached. No, that's something I've done as well. I, I remember, you know, the first solo authored manuscript, mine got torn apart uh, and eventually didn't make it to publication in AJHB. That, that first time, that was emotionally destructive and I didn't want to put it aside. Yeah. Uh, but I've definitely learned and it gave me perspective and allowed me to percolate, if you will, about mm -hmm. the, the different topics of why it needs to be fixed here or there. Before we get into kind of the future, there's kind of one more process thing or sure. maybe kind of two questions. What are some like very easy to remedy issues you see in manuscripts that lead to pretty quick rejection? 
Yeah. So my first bit of advice is before preparing your manuscript and really as you're preparing it, keep an eye on the guide to authors. So look online for American Journal of Human Biology's Guide to Authors and follow that to the letter. I mean, so much of what our editorial assistants do at the front end is making sure that the procedures have been followed and that all of the pieces that are required for the manuscript are in place. Hmm. So help us on that and give us what we ask for and not what we don't ask for in terms of the manuscript itself. I think the other thing that can be important to keep in mind is obviously the audience that you're you're pitching this to you know so we are focused on evolutionary biocultural aspects of population biology but you also want to speak to as broad an audience as possible so clear and concise writing there's going to be some jargon that's associated with the work that we do but mm-hmm. clarity and as little jargon as possible is appreciated I feel like sometimes there's a lot of pushback on reducing jargon in manuscripts and that I prefer to write more accessibly and more simply. Yes. But I've also been dinged on manuscripts for doing just that. I think active voice and clarity and conciseness, good writing is good writing, whether we're talking about academic writing or general popular writing. Now, obviously, there's going to be some stylistic differences, but the clearer that you can make it to a potential reviewer, the easier process that you're going to have. And making sure then that the structure of the manuscript is as a reviewer and as an editor is going to expect, that's going to help ease it through the process as well. Okay. I think that's wonderful, wonderful advice. And I greatly appreciate you pushing clear writing, removing jargon, because I'm such a big proponent of it. Right, so let's talk about your vision for AJHB. And this is kind of a a combination question that we had for you as well as Asher Rosinger uh, from Twitter. So he noted that the impact factor has been dropping for AJHB over the past several years. And so I guess two questions in one of what is your vision for AJHB and how might that vision help improve these somewhat questionable metrics as impact factor? Yeah. yeah, so my vision for the journal is continuing to, to make sure that we recruit and profile cutting-edge research in human population biology. And so, I mean, we occupy a space that is doing both the understanding of human diversity and health from an informed and nuanced evolutionary perspective, while at the same time publishing the integration of biocultural perspectives, how culture, biology, and evolution come together. I want AJHB, I think it already is, but I want it to continue to be the prominent venue for that. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of the, the areas where I personally feel like there's a lot of exciting research going on, genetics and epigenetics, mm-hmm. the microbiome, I think, as it reflects both the interplay between biology, culture, and our evolutionary history is an important piece. Various areas of evolutionary medicine. I think we in population biology, in terms of providing that thoughtful, nuanced perspective of how evolution shapes behavior and biology and how our past impacts current health considerations, those are important issues that we need to be 
on the front lines of. From my own personal research perspective, I think there's a lot of dynamic work going on in terms of ecological and evolutionary energetics. And so comparative energetics from an evolutionary ecological perspective is, I think we can be the place for an awful lot of that work. And certainly the development and the application of life history theory, those kinds of pieces are central in terms of where we are as a field and, and how we're moving forward. And so those are the kinds of areas that I want to embrace. In terms of the kinds of innovations and directions in articles, one of the things that I feel very strongly about is I'm going to be recruiting more invited feature articles from leaders in many of those areas that I was just outlining. So this is something that has been seen in the journal in the past, I would say somewhat less so over the last few years. And it's something that I really want to sort of reinvigorate, inviting key leaders in the field to do invited review papers on emerging areas in human population biology. So that's going to be an important piece. And I encourage all of our viewers and listeners to email me with ideas. Self-nominations for this are great because I think this is something that, that I think will be important in terms of continuing to you know, expand the profile of the journal. One of the things that I've always appreciated about AJHB that we will continue to do is publish important, groundbreaking special issues. We have regularly been, you know, publishing papers coming out of the keynote symposium at the Human Biology Association meetings every year. I think those special issues have been really important contributions to the journal, and we will continue to do that. Other timely special issues we are open to publishing. I think that's a nice way of sort of summarizing state of the art of various areas of our field. And so looking ahead to 2020, we've already got in process and lined up two really dynamic special issues, one coming out of last year's plenary session on water and human biology, and then another one that is sort of bringing us up to speed on the state of biocultural anthropology, mm. so really reflecting back on the last 20 to 25 years and seeing where we have gone and, and how the interplay between biocultural and evolutionary perspectives are continuing to, to shape our field of, of human biology. I think people are going to really like that biocultural one, because that's a word that gets tossed around so much and not everybody has a really good concept of what one it is, or I'm sorry, what one, what it is, and two, how to do it and do it well, because it's That's tricky. That's exactly right. We discussed this in our first interview with you <laughs> when we talked about your research. Indeed, and then sort of one of the drums that I have beaten quite a bit over the last several years is as we have seen the growth of the field of human biology, there has been healthy diversification, but one of the things that saddens me a little bit is seeing at times biocultural and evolutionary being portrayed in oppositional terms or entirely segmented as different pieces. Mm -hmm. I think the power of our field, and I would argue, I would like to see it as the power of our journal, is being able to keep both of those balls in the air and see the ways in which biocultural dimensions and evolutionary dimensions are critically important pieces that need to be sort of juggled together and integrated into the larger whole. No, and that's so wonderful. Research that is doing that 
we are the place for that research. Yeah. So that's how you want to intellectually move AJHB forward. So how yes. do you want to move it forward in the public sphere so that more people are aware of our work, both in the field, other fields, and of course, just the general public? Precisely. And this gets to the other piece that you and, and Asher were raising about the impact factor and the fact that AJHB, I would note, along with many other anthropology journals over the last few years, has seen somewhat of a decline in, in impact. And that's certainly something that I am mindful of. In terms of sort of unpacking the root of that, I think there are a number of variables at play. One of them is the fact that certainly the publishing space in human biology broadly defined is a, is a much more competitive one now mm. than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. New journals in allied areas like life history theory and evolutionary medicine are creating competition for manuscripts. The other thing that now that I've sort of had a clearer view on manuscript flow that has been a positive with American Journal of Human Biology over the last several years is that the number of manuscripts that we are receiving and publishing continues to increase. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the manuscript flow for the journal this year, we are almost on par with AJPA in terms of the number of manuscripts that are coming in. Wow. This ultimately leads to, I mean, the, the, the rejection rate, you know, as a result of this has gone up a bit over time, but we are also publishing many more papers these days in the journal than we were five years ago, 10 years ago. Meaning that for the impact factor, that denominator is, is a much larger number, is an increasingly larger number than it was before. So all to say that I think the impact factor is, is an important thing to keep in mind, but we also need to be mindful of the fact that there are a number of variables that can mm -hmm. shift it in any different direction. And there are a lot of, some journals at least in our field, that have particularly high impact factors, but are not publishing the volume of good work mm -hmm. that, that the journal is. But in terms of thinking about then how we bring our work to a broader audience. Here is where there are a number of innovations that I would like to try to begin to, to launch for the journal. One within the scope of the journal itself, and this is something that is seen in many Wiley journals, is flagging up some of what I see as the leading biggest impact work in every issue in what's called the editor's choice. So is there is the, the option on within the journal's website to flag up, highlight, and summarize key pieces that are being published in every issue and making those more broadly accessible to the general audience. The other thing that you and I and Chris will be working on together. Hey, Chris. Hello. I apologize for that. Anyway, Bill, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So giving American Journal of Human Biology a broader social media presence. So putting the work that is being published in AJHB out there on Twitter and Facebook. And the other thing that I'm really looking forward to is working with both of you on creating a robust collaboration between the Sausage of Science and the journal to increasingly profile top work and leading authors who are doing cutting edge work in the journal. And so I'm really hopeful 
that those kind of expanded social media presence and greater outreach to our community is going to be a really important part of expanding the impact of AJHB. Well, for one, we are super appreciative of that effort to bring in the podcast to, to help AJHB and to help the podcast. I think it's going to be a mutually beneficial relationship. Indeed. Uh, and another question that I think that's going to hit on this as well about moving AJHB, you know, in the future came from Twitter of somebody wondering if AJHB will support more open science practices. So I know this is something that we had talked about before, but uh, encourage data sharing, uh, published registered reports or code sharing, those kinds of things. Is that something AJHB is going to be more open to and encourage? That is something that AJHB is going to be more open to and actively working on. And so we're just about to publish issue number five of volume 31, so the, the current volume of AJHB. And I have an editorial in there, my, my first one as editor. And one of the things that I talk about is the fact that data sharing, open access to data, having data repositories is something that is really gonna be increasingly important in human biology and biological anthropology. It's something where I think, frankly, we are behind the curve. And so what we're going to be doing as a first step with AJHB is first on submission, encouraging putting your data in a repository. So there are going to be various badges that making your data available. If you're going to do that, it's going to be flagged up on submission. And once the paper is published, if you have placed your data in an open access repository, then that's going to be flagged up on your manuscript itself when it's published. Hmm. This is obviously not the final step, but I think this is a first step in the process of ultimately requiring that the data that we collect is available to as broad an audience as possible. Mm -hmm. In my editorial, I cite up paper that was just published in the AJPA, co-authored by Connie Mulligan and Trudy Turner. And this is a brief summary of an AAPA workshop that we did back in Milwaukee in winter, which was actually grappling with data sharing issues in biological anthropology. And so the piece outlines what we thought were some best practices and some goals moving forward. And so I see this as a really important piece for our field, something that I'm committed to, and you'll be seeing this rolled out in more detail in the journal. That's wonderful. What about, uh, I'm just curious of what your thoughts are on this, because I haven't fully formed my own opinion, but the trend toward pre-registering your hypotheses up before the project has even been done, so that there's a paper trail of transparency? Wow. So, this is something that I'm not really familiar with at all. Is this in response to then the critiques that have been raised with sort of p-hacking and, and I think that has a lot of merit. How it would actually be operationalized, I can see a lot of different directions that that could go in. The other thing that I, I also wanna emphasize here though, and this is something doing a freshman seminar this year that is the same one that I did a year ago, with first-generation students who are interested in the biological sciences, interested in, the, in sort of pre-medical training. And, and this was one of the issues that we grappled with in the seminar last year was the, this whole issue of p-hacking and hypothesis testing. And I would agree that being more explicit in our work is something that is critically important. 
But that's not to say that secondary analysis of data that is hypothesis testing is something that we should discourage. Because I think, I think part of what we need to move forward on in embracing open science is ensuring that all of the data that get collected, particularly on the public dime, mm. gets the broadest possible venue and the most use. For myself, that I, that I think a lot of the data that gets collected in our world gets underutilized and making mm. it as widely available as possible. This has been one of the things that we've been really, for our own work in Bolivia as part of the Chamani project, have been very strongly committed to is, you know, when we get a new round of data, making it available and having people be able to access that information. This is something that's come up before, to mention his name again, Asher Rosinger, when we had him on the show, he, he talked about the importance of big data and how we need to encourage graduate students that it's okay to use existing data sets and they need to use existing data sets because there are so many questions left unanswered. Uh, and I think it becomes important to encourage and support that. So like, for example, at the HBAs, we had a big discussion during student awards of if it had to be original field work or if it would be okay if it was someone else's data set. And people were highly split on what should be considered, I don't want to say valuable, but at least award worthy. And so I think the more we can encourage and push that sentiment that using others' data that's freely available to test questions, I think the, the better the field is going to be, honestly. Right. And, and I think that then becomes the piece to emphasize, regardless of whether you're collecting data fresh or doing secondary data analysis, you're going into the data set with, as Chris was just outlining, a well-formed set of questions and hypotheses that you are going to be testing with those data, as opposed to, let's run a bunch of correlations and see what shows up as statistically significant. Yeah. Uh, the very problem that, you know, have gotten some high-profile researchers into trouble over the last few years. Now, fishing expeditions are not recommended in science. Although no. sometimes they do lead to things, but yeah, they go do. in with hypotheses. Right, I would think we covered, one, a lot of ground, and two, I think, I speak for myself, poor Chris was stuck in a faculty meeting during most of this interview. Uh, I'm extremely excited about the direction uh, that you have in mind for AJHB, and I think we have a lot to look forward to. Is, in our closing, is there anything you would like our listeners to know about the process or a AJHB, any final messages you wanna give? Yeah, final messages that I would like to give is, I would hope this is an invitation and an opportunity encouraging all of our viewers and listeners to submit their very best work to the American Journal of Human Biology. The other thing that I'd, I'd like to say about the review process is, having been an associate editor for many years and now seeing the reviews coming in as editor for AJHB, reviewers do a tremendous and often at times thankless job. Reviewing manuscripts for journals, you're doing a, a good and thoughtful job. You get kudos from the editors and the journals themselves, but in terms of recognition in big ways in our academic life, it's undervalued. And so doing a good job is, is something that I think is under-recognized, and yet I'm generally very pleased and at times blown away with, with the efforts that our, our reviewers do. And so I think certainly editorial board and reviewers, they're favorably inclined. They want 
to see good work and they want to review stuff that ultimately gets published. And so with rare exceptions, I think reviewers are coming into this process with a positive, favorable tone. And so one, as an author, should see it as your job to give them the most possible to work with. Because we want to like your work and we want to see it ultimately appear in the journal and do well by the journal and, and by the field itself. And so I would underscore that to, to everyone as well. The other thing that I should, should flag up is Trudy Turner, new journal editor at AJPA, and I met last month and we have talked about doing an editor's, here's how to review papers, here is the process of getting published at the AAPA HBA meetings in the spring. So keep your eyes peeled for that because right. Trudy and I are committed to sort of trying at least in some ways to, to demystify this process a little bit. Yeah, having a, a PDF guide up on the site would be great for new reviewers. Bill, you put a call out there if you have something you want to submit to AJHB or you have questions to contact you. So how can people do that? Contact me via my email address. That's w-leonard1 at northwestern.edu. So that's now posted on the journal website. I look forward to, to hearing from folks. Chris, how can people get a hold of you? People can get a hold of me if I'm not in a faculty meeting on Twitter, mm -hmm. at Chris underscore L-Y. And you, I'm Kara? at Kara Akabach. And we have been the Sausage of Science for the Human Biology Association. You can find us on all your podcasting servers. Like us, love us, write really nice, shiny reviews of us. Say some honest words if you want. Tell us what we can, how we can improve, how we've made your lives better. And a big thank you to Caroline Owens, our producer who edits us and makes us sound good. And thank you to the Human Biology Association for their support as well. Right on. Thank you, Bill. Thank My you, Bill. My pleasure. Thanks so much. And thank you all for listening.